0: Lockhead, the Peanuts Tribute podcast from a cartoonist's point of view. My name is Jeff Grogan, and I will be your host for the next few minutes to talk about Peanuts, Charles Schultz, and all things Charlie Brown, Linus, Lucy, and Snoopy, too. So sit back and enjoy. Hello, welcome to Blockhead, and uh, welcome to April, right? It's April. It is, uh, by the time this goes up, tax day will have come and gone. I just finished mine. It was a hair-raising experience, and I don't have much hair to raise on my head, so uh, that tells you what to expect from Mr. Taxman this year. Uh, Oh gosh, what a a, a trauma that was uh, going through that. Oh my gosh. Uh, every every time they change the tax plan, right? And uh, Anyway, uh, I've recovered from filing my taxes today, although just barely. And I'm looking for relief, so I'm coming upstairs to the closet here, locking myself in away from the world. Uh, me and Betsy are, are here to talk peanuts and comic strips and cartooning rather than thinking about taxes and the federal government and the mess we're in and uh oh god i don't even want to go there anyway this is refuge right this is a place to get away from all that crap get away from all of those uh, ills of the world and think about what really matters and what really matters is cartooning what really matters is comics what really matters is charlie brown and charles schultz and snoopy and all of those guys and uh, that's that's what gets us happy Happiness is peanuts. Happiness is not doing the taxes. Happiness is filing your taxes and getting a refund. Although that's not what's happening this year. Oh, man. Anyway, so let's leave it aside. Me and Betsy. Betsy is here. So just in case those are of you who uh, were concerned, after I didn't mention her last episode, Betsy. Roly-poly is doing well. And uh, she's very comfortable at my feet here on her little rug curled up beneath me and purring quite, quite loudly this, this afternoon, aren't you bet? Well, anyway, we're both uh, chilling. We're both calming down after the uh, nerve wracking episode of tax preparation this morning. Uh, So today we have Steve Conley on. Wow, Steve Conley. He's the cartoonist behind that wonderful comic strip on the web called The Middle Age, which is on GoComics.com. You can also find it at SteveConley.com. And uh, Conley is spelled C-O-N-L-E-Y. And uh, Steve has such a great background. He's so He's got such a wide range of experience, both in graphics and web design and in comics. Uh, he's been in web comics since the mid-'90s. He's been in comics uh, one way or the other, small press publishing or writing for DC Comics, uh, doing other things since, since the 90s. He's just a multi-talented individual with a great range of experience. And so I was really thrilled to catch up with him. And I followed his work since way back in the 90s when uh, He and I, uh, although we didn't run into each other back in the early 90s, we were both doing SPX around the same time, and we both uh, were on ComicCon.com, one of the initial websites for webcomics back in the late 90s. And uh, Steve actually, uh, it turns out, was the designer of that website, which was uh, his idea along with Rick, Rick Veach together they put that wonderful website together which was a host for a whole pile of web comics back then mine included Uh, and so uh, we've crossed paths but never really met each other except online and uh and I ran into Steve. Well, I, I again. I ran into his work. Ran into his work. Mm, it sounds like I drove a car, right into his, right into his comics. I uh, ran into Steve's work. I used it again. Mm, anyway, I encountered Steve's work. I think uh, probably on Facebook or someplace because we were Facebook friends and. Uh, uh, the middle age and as soon as i saw it i saw i thought oh my gosh this this is uh just such an, an exquisite exemplary piece of craftsmanship uh really in every regard uh the writing uh the the artwork certainly uh, the concept, all of it comes together really, really well. It's a it's a wonderful piece of work. And if you haven't seen The Middle Age yet, check it out either on gocomics.com, if that's where you go for some of your webcomics, or go to steveconley.com and look at it there. The Middle Age is a lighthearted uh, Game of Thrones or uh, uh, Lord of the Rings-style story about a knight's quest and it's a lot of fun it's very funny uh it's beautifully done uh steve is just a consummate digital artist he does wonders in procreate and uh uh, i'm in awe of his skill with the digital pen back in the 90s you know he was doing some great stuff too uh, with astounding space (laughs) astounding space thrills say that three times fast uh which was, he, he threw everything in the kitchen sink back then in the late 90s when the idea of, of web comics is something new that could be entirely different or add extra elements to them and so uh, it was exciting. And Steve was throwing in GIFs and animation into his comic strip and uh, made for an exhilarating experience. And uh, so we talk about that and get into it anyway. Uh, so it's exciting. It's going to be a two-part interview, first part today second part in a couple of weeks it's a long interview we we found we had so much to talk about so many similar experiences growing up in (laughs) growing up in small press and web comics together over the last 25 years or so and uh so there's a lot of commonalities there and uh, i really enjoyed talking to him and uh, i look forward to doing it again sometime although he's in florida and i'm in upstate new york Uh, we'll have to to do it again when we can So let's just get into it then. Steve Conley uh, and myself in discussion, talking about Charles Schultz and Peanuts and comic strips, webcomics, the Middle Age and more. Welcome to Blockhead. Thank you. It's great to have you here and uh, great to have you on the show. And congratulations on the Middle Age. What a wonderful webcomic.
1: Oh, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. I mean, in the context of Charles Schulz, I mean, I'm, I'm a poser, but uh, but I really appreciate it.
0: Well, it's 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 really, a, I mean, I don't know how to say this. It's it's such a fully realized uh, coming together of your talents, your, your graphic design skills, your coloring, um, your storytelling, your script writing, your draftsmanship, all of them come together in the middle age to create, you know, just a, a wonderful, wonderful work that I think is knocking the socks off of anybody who's had a chance to see it.
1: Oh, thanks. I, I think that's a, there's a Will Eisner quote about, uh, being a, uh, oh boy, I want to I butcher it, but he, you know, being an inadequate writer and an inadequate artist, but he turned two inadequacies into an adequacy. And I, I kind of feel like that's maybe what I'm doing.
0: Yeah. Well, uh, I, I think you're, you're much more than adequate on all count, but uh, I think Charles Schultz said the same thing, a very similar thing, you know, which, which was uh, it, it, two inadequacies make a cartoonist and uh, you know, <laughs> yeah. Right. I think one of the things that people listening to this podcast, are going to want to know is how does Charles Schultz, the work of Charles Schultz and peanuts inform such a lavishly illustrated, uh, genre tale like the middle age, uh, where, where is, where is Schultz in your development and, and how does he creep into your work currently?
1: Well, he, he was omnipresent when I was growing up. Um, I grew up uh, on Long Island in New York and, uh, uh, his comics were everywhere. My uh, we we didn't have a lot of money. Um, I didn't have a lot of uh, but the books we had were a lot of paperbacks and paperback reprints, so a lot of secondhand stuff from flea markets, and so a lot of peanuts collections. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then my grandmother, uh, she would get Newsday and the Daily News, and every day she would clip out comics. And for birthdays and Christmas, we would get these. I, I would get a, a composition notebook into which she would have Elmer glued every oh episode God. of the peanuts for, for you know until that book was full um,
0: oh my gosh
1: wow I, I read those i mean she did that for peanuts for garfield i want to say for the spider-man comic strip and for the hulk comic strip which was happening at the time and uh i tore those books apart i mean i looked at them again and again and again so the it, it also it's it's sort of charles schultz is inseparable from cartooning i mean you right can't, i mean there was a I was listening in preparation of this uh, this discussion. Um, the uh, Alistair Cooks uh, very kind uh, send off for uh, Charles. Oh. Schultz. He quotes a you know a French curator at the Louvre who says that you know well, of course we're going to have a uh, tribute to Charles Schultz. I mean he's the most popular artist in the world. Uh, so <laughs> it's like wow. Uh, yeah, I mean I don't know how you can you can't separate him from what we do and, and and the format too um and and specifically when when starting the middle age i was thinking about because it's a web comic first right right uh, and it is a comic strip i mean part of its size it was i mean I, when you start a project you have to pick what size this thing is going to be and so one of my considerations was looking at peanuts and calvin and Hobbes, and my comic strips exactly the same size i put a gutter right down the middle so i can stack it vertically but uh-huh. that's no different than what Charles Schulz was doing with his that quote unquote space saver format of his with the four right. equal size boxes i mean peanuts is perfect for instagram it's perfect for webtoons <laughs> it's perfect for facebook i mean he was it, it's so brilliantly designed that yeah. even technically it informs what i'm doing That's uh, uh, all of the, I mean, there's so
0: much to unpack in what you've just said. Uh, It's really interesting. Schultz was was ahead of his time. He was already, you know, uh, looking ahead to Instagram. fantastic uh but you're absolutely right and uh if folks don't uh, know the middle age which you can read at steveconley.com or you can go to gocomics.com and find the middle age there uh it is a comic strip it is formatted as a comic strip even though it's a grand adventure you know on the scale of the hobbit or lord of the rings and things of that nature it's also a comic strip and it it's it doesn't necessarily have a well, it has a punchline pretty much in every single page, uh, and every single page is is arranged exactly like that. So, so that uh, so you were thinking about how to format it so that it could fit multiple formats right in the beginning,
1: right? And I, I absolutely and part of the thinking was the reason why I have that those punchlines, so that bit of uh, to deliver that bit of tension at the end of the strip, maybe a cliffhanger, but usually a punchline in every episode was that. I knew that this was going to be a beast of social media that, Mm -hmm. you know, as a since there's not a lot of money in syndicated cartooning anymore. I mean, you know, fingers crossed for Will Henry and uh, Dana Simpson. Uh, But uh, in in terms of what I'm doing, there's really no no newspaper is going to run this thing. Um, So which is a shame. But yeah, you're right. You're right. And also I can only do like I mean, my strip is very labor intensive. And so I can't do I mean, I could do five days a week, but I would need a staff. Um, but in this case, it's, it's, um uh, each one of those has to stand alone because partly was, I knew I was only gonna do one episode a week and yeah. I needed to deliver enough each week that would inspire a person to come back. And given that each week for those seven days, this will probably be a new reader's first taste mm-hmm. of the comic. Mm-hmm. Each one has to stand alone enough so that they reader, that new reader can get hooked and be invited into the world. Mm-hmm. And not be so not reintroducing the characters every single time to the point where it becomes monotonous when it's binged later you know when some, so that, someone sits some down with the book that they don't feel like oh my gosh i'm getting the introduction every page
0: you know th- that's that's interesting that is one of the classical requirements of the daily comic strip and i remember reading both stan lee saying that and, and i think you know, Milton Caniff and and just about every great cartoonist who worked in a serial format uh, said that, you know, every every uh, day is somebody's first day with the comic strip. All of them have this. It's without doing exactly what you're saying, without, you know, going through the exposition and reintroducing the characters or even having a synopsis in the beginning of the, the strip, which would slow everything down, especially when you collect it together. All of these great masters of the form found a way to hook you, bring you into the story, let you know what you needed to know uh, to get started, and then allow you to sort of segue into the the material as a whole so that once you got in there, you were immersed in it and you were ready to go. And uh, you do that too. It's absolutely true. And, and uh, I found it really easily accessible in that sense um, when I first started reading it. And I think I first started reading it when it was, you know, several, maybe several weeks in, I'm not quite sure, uh, but, you know, it made me want to go back and r- start at the beginning and then continue forward. And I had no trouble. I was hooked.
1: I, and I have to thank you. You were a very early uh, uh, promoter of the strip and you were very kind, you know, you I am mean, not promoter, not like you're out there handing uh, out <laughs> leaflets, but you were very, you know, any amount of encouragement early on is just oh, tremendous sure. and you were very kind. So I appreciate that.
0: Well, Steve, you know, when I see something I really like, man, I really, I really like it. And, and as a a cartoonist too, you know, I mean, I, I just, you know, I hook into something and I'm like, yeah, all right, man, go. And, and it, it, it inspires me too. You know, it sets me, okay. You know, you and I don't do the same kind of thing, but it, it sets me to working and to see somebody else who's working. And I think, this is one of those things that Schultz had too, right? It's like this competitiveness. And and it's while I don't, like, compete on the same level with what you're doing because we're doing very different things at the same time, you your work and the work of Will Henry and other contemporaries uh, whose work I come across that I'm enthusiastic about and want to see again every day, uh, it just inspires me to go back to the drawing board and work harder.
1: And I, and I like... A- I like that. I mean, that's the, what I also like nowadays that that competition seems to be less of a factor than it used to be back in the day when everyone was fighting for a space on a comic page or mm-hmm. the way the late night shows used to compete with one another. And now they can be a bit more cordial and a bit because they realize that, you know, people aren't, you know, it's, it's, there's a chance to watch the thing on YouTube later the next day or with their DVR the next day, that sort of thing. And I feel like with comics that we can be much more social and, uh, and I don't know, I, I what's really nice about doing web comics is that you you, you don't feel competition. And so I, I don't really have, I, you know, I can feel that way about I can, I'm just competing with myself. Yeah, uh, but I, yeah. But I can be inspired by work like yours and work like Will Henry's and uh, and, and, you know, and then all everything that came before.
0: Uh, yeah. Yeah, and everything that came before, it's exactly right. You know, uh, there, again, there's so many multiple thoughts firing right now in, in my mind, but one of the things I want to go back to before I forget it is one of the things you mentioned when talking about how you initially conceived of the strip was the format. And it, it brings me back to Schultz and thinking about that format that Schultz, uh, it, did he go to the syndicate? Originally, he went to the syndicate with single panel cartoons and they were interested in those. But then he he went to the meeting, not only with the single panel cartoons, but he went with a fallback position, which was a comic strip format. And the comic strip format he brought to them, and, and I don't know if he conceived of this uh, prior to going or there was some a conversation somewhere. He went to them with this little strip with four panels, you know, with these little characters that fit in. And it makes me wonder, did he actually sit out as a designer and uh, the way that you know i know you have after you know a after the fact because we've got all these years of and and all of these media uh, social media to to fit into now but did he sit back and and think okay comics are shrinking let me create something that's going to work for editors in a variety of different ways because i don't know of anybody else who was working that way in the 50s
1: i i never heard it i mean i'd only see i heard that Uh, His publishers, uh, the syndicate, was selling it to newspapers in this quote unquote space saver format that they could be run. It could run as a vertical column of four, a vertical um, horizontal row of four or in that two by two grid.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And and that super smart. Yeah, it was super smart. I mean, it really was smart. A great marketing uh, technique. And I don't know whether, you know, Charles Schultz came up with it or the syndicate suggested it to him. Did he bring those comics already formatted that way? It really is. You know, it also strikes me that one of the things that he talks about a lot is design. He, he does talk about how, you know, the design of a comics panel, uh, positive and negative space and the arrangement of shapes, uh, to make a pleasing arrangement is the, the quote that, uh, I take from some of his, his interviews, uh, that's something that we. And I think in general, a lot of people don't give a lot of thought to that in fact. Peanuts is designed in a way to appear very pleasing, no matter not only not how you arrange it on the newspaper page, but also within itself. You know, the, the forms fit within the panel. The The size of the characters is drawn so that they fit within the panel nicely and allow for a speech balloon. And, um, and there's always like a, a you know, say snoopy versus charlie brown there's a taller character a shorter character there's always a nice very pleasing accessible arrangement of forms in in schultz's work
1: yeah i think that's what i strike, I, I found so striking when i finally read the early stuff the stuff that came before you know from the very beginning where it was a, a, a little bit edgier mm-hmm. um, that i had grown up with the pleasing Charles schultz with you know happiness is a warm puppy right. and with the holiday specials uh i mean he he was synonymous with like the there's american flag there's baseball and there's peanuts those three things have always existed they've always been you know you know things you (laughs) they're uh, like air. yeah exactly and they're and and you know they're things everybody loves and um uh but to 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 see the earlier work when maybe he was a you know a less uh, maybe a more cantankerous young man Mm -hmm. uh Uh, But the word pleasing seems to be really appropriate for what he did, because, I mean, he still had that edge. He still had that uh, Mm -hmm. that melancholy. Oh, yeah. uh, At the same time, it was like he wanted to make sure that he wasn't bringing everybody down with it. (laughs) Yeah, Uh,
0: yeah. You know one of the things that that strikes me and and I've thought about too uh, is that you know you see these uh, well it happens through the merchandising right the use of the characters as kinds of tropes and they become kind of watered down versions of the characters in the strip and particularly in, in the late 50s early 60s through through 70 or so Um, all of these characters do have an edge to them. And when they're merchandised and repeated ad nauseum in so many different forms, whether it's for, you know, life insurance or, or something else that they're being used to sell, they're used on greeting cards and things like that. Um, you begin to, they're associated with this kind of soft and cuddliness, but in reality, the characters had much more to them than that.
1: Yeah. That was very surprising to find out.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, they really do. They're, there's a lot more than, than what you find just in the in the uh, uh, animated specials, for example, and, and stuff like that. A lot more melancholy, a lot more sarcasm, a lot more aggression.
1: And uh, anxiety.
0: And anxiety, absolutely. Sure, absolutely. So, uh, you know, one of the reasons I was thinking about design, because your work makes me think about design, uh, you have a graphic design background, do you not?
1: Yeah, um, my... Uh, I- I studied commercial art, even in high school, and then got a degree in advertising art uh, on Mm -hmm. Long Island, just a two-year degree. But uh, that immediately led into work for newspapers. Um, And uh, I worked in art departments at at, uh, News Service and then at USA Today in their art department, where I met a a number of other cartoonists. Uh, Everywhere, every step along the way, whether it was the college newspaper or in uh, art school, I mean, everywhere I went, there was cartoonists. They were all trying to find (laughs) They're all trying to find a way to make a living. None of them were trying to do cartooning or they, we would all do it on the side or we'd introduce tons of comics into the school newspaper. A lot of the artists at USA Today, Nick Galifianakis, Marty mm-hmm. Bowman, mm-hmm. Kevin Reckon, tons mm-hmm. of cartoonists who were, you know, if you check out Go Comics, you know, you'll feel still see there. Yeah. yeah. Um, Marty's gone to work for Pixar and Disney. Wow. Uh, uh, wonderful cartoonists, amazingly t- talented people who were all just, you know, newspapers were paying better at the time. So we all went there. What are we talking about? The uh, the eighties, mid eighties. Uh, I got in there around. I got in the news service around nineteen ninety, like right Nineteen ninety.
0: Okay. Okay. yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, newspapers were still the only game in town then, right? For cartoonists. So that's that there is
1: only one. There was only one news channel, uh, mm. one cable news network at the time. You know, CNN. It was, right. Uh, headlines or, as well. Um, yeah. And so especially with the news blackout that occurred during the Gulf War in 1990, the newspapers were king because everybody turned to the newspapers to see the maps, the charts. We, there was a hardware fetish. So we we're like drawing tons of tanks and train and planes and weapons of every type. Um, oh,
0: wow. So you guys you guys had you you were really the last bastion in a sense. You were you you, you know, nobody was getting visuals anyplace else.
1: And infographics back then were having a heyday. They were still fun and light. And because you could see the cartooning influence in news graphics back then, because there was a lot of bounciness to the characters, a very lively spirit and color palette. Nowadays, Mm -hmm. infographics or data visualization is mostly just this kind of monochromatic typographic mm-hmm. exercise with a few charts here and there um it, they really don't have the kind of pictorial approach the way we did back then we, we, back then we were just trying to draw funny things and you know we use infographics as an excuse nowadays people <laughs> are actually maybe making the data more important than the cute picture so i can, I can see why it's gone the way it has but uh, i miss uh the kind of stuff we snuck into uh, art back then
0: wow you're you're it's so great and really i mean it must have been so inspiring really to be surrounded by cartoonists that way um i've always i've always been uh, unfortunately the only cartoonist in the room <laughs> wherever i've been uh, unfortunately but uh, that must have been a kind of cool environment to to be in
1: yeah i mean it was it was very interesting to feel connected to the news in a way that i hadn't been before like when something <laughs> happened in the world it was like oh wow that's going to change the rest of my day sure Uh, but uh those other cartoonists it was great because we immediately bond on things like you know i I was 22 Mm -hmm. uh, these were some older artists and you know i'd come in there they say who's your favorite artist like wally wood and like how do you know who he is you know that sort of thing and i we immediately bonded on these kind of esoteric cartoonists that we all loved and oh yeah wally wood wow yeah he's
0: he's he's a huge one he's a titan uh (laughs) Yeah, and, and it's interesting how, you know, the volumetric qualities in Wally, Wally Wood's work. It, they're born out in kind of, you know, even now in what you're doing, I can kind of see that. And I actually can see some of Mad Magazine in what you're doing, too, early Mad Magazine. I mean, Harvey Kurtzman, Wally Wood stuff from Mad, yeah. Uh, I don't know if that's an inspiration, but it certainly kind of seems to be there.
1: Yeah, it is. Wally Wood was like my, my hero for, I mean, I think I stumbled onto his work when I was 10 years old. I think he had just passed away um passed away. A, he had just taken his own life. Um yeah. and his one of his thing, his creations of the Thunder Agents, yeah. was thought to have fallen into public domain, at least by mm-hmm. one or two publishers. And so all of a sudden there were this there was this other company coming out. This was just also at the time of the of the black and white publishing boom, mm-hmm. I mean, following up on the turtles and all that stuff. Um and color printing, I think. The cost of color printing might have been coming down, too, because there was a bunch of independent comics like First Comics and Capital City or Capital oh. Comics. Uh, they were um, – and this one deluxe comics in particular. They had hired Dave Cockrum, George Perez, and Keith Giffen and a bunch of creators to reinterpret or modernize maybe the uh, the Thunder Agents. And I saw that stuff and I just went, this is amazing and I need to know more. And that's <laughs> – and that led me to realizing that I was familiar with Wally Wood's work because of some library books, uh-huh. uh, collections of some great classic science fiction, and included one, some of his stories like The Curse, this uh-huh. beautiful, oh my goodness, if you're if if you you don't, if you're not familiar with The Curse, he wrote it and drew it. It's about this, well, I won't give it away. It's a short, you know, short story, but it's a fantasy story. And holy cow, did that permanently imprint on my brain. Um, and then later on, other influences are things like, you know, Walt Kelly. Eve Chalonde uh, there's a lot of Jack Kirby Steve Ditko a tons of Jim Steranko, a ton of disparate influences I'm sure that make their way into my work in some way
0: oh yeah absolutely absolutely and it's funny it, what, what, one of the things I love about talking to other cartoonists is as we talk about different cartoonists that we're inspired by uh, I begin to see you know little bits here and there of those cartoonists in you know uh in in this case in your work i can see little bits of kirby here and there i can see certainly see wally wood that's for certain um and you know uh, the number a number of the other cartoonists you're naming uh yeah it's sort of like little bits here and there you know great artists um one of the things about great artists is that they they have this impact like Schultz, you know, they have this impact on a whole sea of, of followers of cartoonists who come up after them. And it's, it's, there's little bits in each of their work that are picked up by other cartoonists. And sometimes a cartoonist like yourself may pick up, you know, a a little bit of line work from Wally Wood, a little bit of this from Will Eisner, a little bit of that from Jack Kirby, not the whole thing, but just you know, this little thing that just stuck with you through your development. It's really gratifying in a way to go back and, and to see the tradition and to see all of the influences moving forward the way they do. It's a fascinating process. And, uh, and each of us takes those and, and, uh, you know, models them, pushes them around all of those little bits of influences from all these cartoonists, We don't know exactly how they're going to come out in the work, but, you know, each of us finds a way to incorporate all of those lessons uh, differently. And I guess that's what makes the world go round, right?
1: (laughs) Yeah, I I, I totally agree. I I think at some point it's like reading. uh, It's just exactly like reading prose where this, you know, this wall of words enters your brain. And they're just rattling around in there. And some words you've learned from that author, and you haven't learned those words from any no other author you've encountered has used those words. Right. And later on, one of those words finds its way into your work. Yeah. And, you know, they, you could draw a direct line to that person. Um, and then when when if it's a particularly unusual word, more people will draw that line from oh. that particular source. And I think we see that in a lot of cartoonists, where you know, um, another big influence on me, much more recent was I got to be the book designer on the art of Richard Thompson, collecting all of all his work, not sack, just Cult yeah. his his um, uh, Richard's Par Almanac uh, strip okay. that he had for at the Washington Post. I believe it was mm-hmm. one, Washington Post. Um, and I got to be the book designer on that. So for nine months, I was just inundated with Richard Thompson's work. And Richard was someone who I knew from the Washington, D.C. scene because he was sort of a, a hero in town. Um, right. As being the, you know, the guy who had gotten, who who could who was actually able to sustain a freelance job. <laughs> you know, most of
0: yeah. us, we <laughs> were too dream. cowardly.
1: Oh yeah, yeah, we were all too cowardly to quit uh, the newspaper work or the news service work. Mm-hmm. Uh, but he was doing it, and um, so I knew Richard. I think I'd run into him a few times, um, and but there was opportunity to work on this book, uh, and just breathing his work for nine mm-hmm. months just mm-hmm. totally altered how i do everything and i think he's he's almost like you could draw you know peanuts directly to cul-de-sac yeah and so yeah. i was kind of it was like getting i was getting secondhand peanuts for nine months uh and That's uh fantastic wow and he, and he totally changed my mind because for the longest time you'll see in my work i was trying to make something quote-unquote perfect i wanted it to look like steve rude or russ manning or wally wood this kind of Hellenic ideal of what a comic is and I was every effort was made to can I make this hero look as heroic as possible or in the Mm -hmm. you know in the shadow of Jack Kirby and Jim Stranko Mm -hmm. and Richard had a different North Star his stuff just he just and I and Charles Schultz the same way he just wanted it to be funny
0: right right funny drawing
1: yeah and so Richard Thompson's cow doesn't look anything like a cow but you've never seen a funnier cow it is yeah. the funniest thing you've ever seen it will and it, it it was and so i was that was in my head when i was starting this strip and then i kind of gave up on kind of a naturalistic head shape for the character i was kind of like let's just lean into the cartooniness as best i can and try to draw something that makes me laugh well
0: you know and i think that's one of the things that uh, i really appreciate about what you're doing it's it's and and I think it's it's wonderful in a lot of uh, really great comics that find a middle path between uh, illustrative naturalism and, and cartooning. And, you know, of the great masters that we're talking about, certainly, you know, Kirby was a cartoonist and, and Wally Wood could do both of those things. For me, his cartooning in Mad Magazine stands out. Uh, just because of my sensibility but now you're talking about you know richard thompson and charles schultz and, and schultz and thompson both share that idea you know that cartooning is funny drawing and and really if you're going to do a humor strip and there's a lot of humor in the middle age Finding a way to incorporate funny drawing is is really important. And I I have to say the character design for Sir Quimp, who is the main character, uh, is terrific. It's it's really unique. It's uh, it's oddball. It's quirky. It's strange. Um, But it draws you in because of that. And uh, and then it sort of just seems to suit his personality.
1: Well, thanks. That's uh, his shortness. It's his roundness is very horizontal or squarish shape was kind of based on you know just thinking about newspaper format you know how do i you, you discuss this with brad uh, uh brad perry mm-hmm. that you know having a kind of a squatter character just suits the space more and him, ta- him talking to his sword that kind of grew out of the notion of like i want to make dumb jokes and i want to have room for my dumb jokes with my big print because again yeah. newspapers the type has to be nice and big and thinking about mobile phones yeah to be nice and big so um So him talking to a sword meant I only had to draw one character holding a weapon and I could have an entire conversation. And it wouldn't be this case of, you know, just a character monologuing.
0: Um, right, which which was I think really is really brilliant about the strip too is the you know the use of the sword. Uh, um, Maledicta is the name of the sword, mm-hmm. or is that how you pronounce it? Yes. Um, the the um, what is the sword called? The, the sword of woe or something? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, the sword of woe, and it, which is fabulous. But it's almost like the two of them are a comedy team, uh, playing off one another. You know, uh, Sir Quimp is kind of the straight man. Uh, and uh, Maledicta is the, the comedian always making the jokes, cracking the jokes. But you have to, you can't have a monologue, really, a strip that's just a monologue. got to have characters playing off each other. Otherwise, it's like, you know, for the reader, it just becomes pretty dull pretty quickly.
1: Yeah, yeah, for sure. And the idea of having characters with competing interests and, you know, certainly a bit of conflict uh, makes oh, the whole well. thing a lot more fun.
0: Well, and, and we're talking about, you know, ostensibly talking about Charles Schultz. And when you think about Peanuts, right, and I've talked about this before, but the setup of Peanuts, uh, but, and I don't think this is preconceived. I think this grew naturally in Schultz's work. But, you know, you have these characters who are at odds with one another. And, you know, you have uh, Charlie Brown, who is insecure, and you have Lucy, who is overbearing and, and unbelievably secure you know and uh, the two play off each other in a really uh dynamic and a, and a fully charged way you know there's electricity to to that relationship and uh, the same is true here Well, it's not the same kind of relationship obviously it's a different story but you know you've got that setup you've got these two characters who are in some opposition to one another
1: well let me ask you about uh, about, uh, about Lucy do you think she was I never got the sense every time she pulled the football away from Charlie Brown I never got the sense it was out of malice I for some reason I don't know whether it's the charm of his drawing or that somehow this was her trying to teach him a lesson about life every single time I don't know why that was I
0: I don't know. I go back to some of those first strips and like, okay, there's one strip that is not about the football, but it's, uh, it's, it's Lucy responding to Charlie Brown and it, it, it it kind of sums up at least the Lucy that I grew up with, and I and I have to say, Lucy post nineteen seventy is a different character from f- late fifties and sixties. So this one strip is reprinted in one of the paperback books somewhere, and I came across it while I was you know going through it over the summer just for fun. And anyway, the strip is Charlie Brown is skateboarding right? And Charlie Brown is skateboarding and Lucy's in the background watching. And as Charlie Brown is skateboarding, all of a sudden the skateboard goes out from under him. He goes flipping through space the way Charlie Brown does in a Charles Schultz drawing. And he lands flat on his back. Boom, you know, boom, whoop, you know, right on the ground. And you can tell that hurt, right? That hurt. And he's just laying there. And Lucy walks up to him and she looks down at him and says, you blockhead. And in the last panel, he's like, did I deserve, he's thinking to himself, you know, did I deserve that? And she says, I can't help but add insult to injury. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, oh my gosh, that's Lucy, you know? And so for me, Lucy is a much more, I don't know if malice is necessarily the right word, but she, and it's not that she was up to no good. Cause Lucy has a soft side too she's a very complicated character she's my she's got to be i always thought Grown up linus was my favorite character but i really find that over a period of time that in a lot of ways lucy's my favorite character because she's so she she's so forceful and and she changes the dynamic of the strip in such a strong way and it, it, i don't know if it's it, it, she's just so determined and, but i don't know if malice is the right word but boy she 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 wasn't kind
1: <laughs> yeah it was like she thought if, if she saw anybody enjoying something she would think uh that they're delusional or something <laughs> like that like there's a she has to get involved or or, or you know uh I don't Talk know. It's like it or something.
0: Yeah. But at the same time, you know, Schultz is the one who wrote the great pumpkin, Charlie Brown and Linus is out there sleeping in the pumpkin patch in the middle of the night. And Lucy goes out to, to, you know, bring him in at three in the morning. And, and, uh, you know, she cares for her little brother enough that she is going to um, ask for tricks or treats, you know, when she goes Halloweening for uh, mm-hmm. her brother, who's out in the pumpkin patch. So she's kind in some ways, but then she's got this quality, especially when relating to Charlie Brown. And maybe you're right, Maybe she is trying to teach Charlie Brown a lesson. i I don't really know what's at the heart of that. And I and forgive me, you know that's it's easy to psychoanalyze it and say that, you know, Schultz is, got something, you know, there's something about his first marriage that's found its way into Lucy. I don't know, you know, I have no idea. I know that some of the kids, um, say that's absolutely incorrect. You, you know, but boy, it's really strange that after, you know, Charles Schultz divorces and remarries, Lucy becomes a much more docile character, uh, later on. Um, much quieter as peppermint Patty, you know, becomes larger in the strip. Lucy becomes less and less dominant. And, uh, less and less strong really he doesn't use her in the same way later mm. on which i miss i have to say but you can't go on doing the same thing forever but so it's an interesting question about lucy you know
1: yeah i've always wondered that i thought if anyone knew or had a had some in, had more insight it would be you i'm, I'm, I'm <laughs> really appreciate what you're saying
0: well i'm sure other people have you know different thoughts there are other you know uh other peanuts people out there, I'm not going to call myself a scholar because I'm not, but I'm a cartoonist that's who's interested. But, you know, uh, fans of the strip probably have different ideas about the development of Lucy, but, uh, she's, she's a really complicated character. And, uh, one of the greatest inventions of comics in the last 50 years, and we just take her, you know, in the last 75 years now, um, we just kind of take that for granted, you know, she she was really radically different, I think in the fifties. I'm trying to think, you know, other female characters that were quite as, as dynamic as Lucy was in the fifties and sixties. And right now, anyway, nothing's popping in mind. I mean, I think of Nancy and Nancy was a quirky character too, but she wasn't the same. And Bushmiller didn't write her the same. She wasn't as aggressive as Lucy. Yeah. I'm not coming up with anybody, but anyway. (laughs) Um, you know, it, it's really interesting. Uh, and that's not exactly the relationship you've got going on with Sir Quimp and Maledicta. There is a kind of adversarial quality to what's going on, but it's not, it's not quite as, you know, well, let's think about that now. Maledicta is really up to no good and, and really does have it in for Sir Quimp. Doesn't, doesn't she? I, why am I saying she's a, she? Maledicta is a she, is she a she?
1: I haven't said, uh, wow. it's an interesting it's she. question. Some people think it's a she. Some people think it's a he. Uh, mm-hmm. One reader suggested that it had the voice of Ian McShane, and that's been very difficult to <laughs> shake. Uh, uh, so, yeah,
0: I could see that too. Wow. But initially, like,
1: I think the vowel at the end made people think this is female. Um, could be. I didn't want I wouldn't want necessarily the only fe- the major female character in the story to be mean spirited. I think initially it was. A, it, it, to me, the gender never even entered into it. It sure. was a, It's a you know what what gender yeah. is that fork. Well, um you know, it's, it's, it, you know,
0: gender's fluid. So who knows where on the
1: scale. Right. So, you know? so, I mean that, um, but, but I know I understand people, you know, will want to use a pronoun, um uh, yeah, sure. and calling anything with a personality, it is very mm-hmm. difficult. And work. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Well, you know, I think about um, actually that calls to mind an idea that uh, Joseph Campbell stuck in my head many years ago. The idea that, um, uh, you know, some cultures uh, and he was talking about Native American culture in particular will address what we consider uh, in Western culture, inanimate forms like uh, or or organic forms that that aren't conscious, like um, like a tree as thou. And when you address a tree as thou, your consciousness changes. Your consciousness about the tree changes. It becomes a living, breathing being when you address it, as thou. And Maledicta is a living, breathing being. And uh, and so, yeah, it's natural to want to give it give Maledicta a pronoun rather than saying it. You know,
1: and I, and I think that's really. It's, it's even the the question. Even thinking about it in terms of thinking of the this cartoon drawing of a sword that somehow mm-hmm. might have, uh, gender associated with it at all is like some, I, I, it would be too weird to even start thinking about, <laughs> well,
0: you know, I, I, there is a, I mean, a tendency too, to, to, uh, address inanimate objects, I guess maybe it's my generation or something, but, uh, to address inanimate forms as she, sure. um, more often than he, ships, you know, we talk like about ships and things like that. Yeah. But uh, I don't know, but you know, uh, I, I, I uh, up until this moment, I actually this conversation, I hadn't really thought of gender in regard to Maledicta. Uh, I read it without a consideration of gender. So it was in the discussion of Lucy that I began to think of Maledicta as she. And maybe, maybe not. Who knows? Uh, maybe yeah. it's a, it could also be who knows what? how the relationship develops um, between Quimp and Maledicta.
1: And uh, I've definitely kept a lot of things out of the strip specifically because i thought this is you know i didn't want to paint myself into a corner and somehow get in the way of a joke later on so (laughs) so i often have uh, maledicta as being the person who is explaining the universe to quimp or the drunken wizard melvwin explaining Mm -hmm. the universe to quimp Mm -hmm. because both of them are unreliable narrators and or unreliable sources of information and so they can say something you -hmm. know they can they can threaten you know the sword might believe quimp is not alive
0: the Mm sword Oh, right.
1: But the sword can threaten his life for for a dozen episodes. And so to me, there's no conflict there because you can't trust the sword. The sword literally says you can't trust me. And so uh, that gives me wiggle room later on to do other fun things with the story and also keep the audience guessing. Well, and and you do guess,
0: and uh, speaking of unreliable sources of information, that again calls to mind Lucy speaking to Linus back in the 50s uh, and early 60s. There was a series of strips that Schultz did where uh, Lucy is in discussion with Linus and she tells him all kinds of falsehoods about the nature of the world. You know, the reason why the sky is blue and et cetera, et cetera. And she, everything she tells him is a falsehood. Well, you know, clouds are actually puffy marshmallows, Linus and and you know some somebody took them and stuck them up in the sky and linus is like wow lucy you're so smart about the world and charlie brown is in the background hearing all of this and his all, all his response is always along the lines of my stomach hurts <laughs> you know so uh, but yeah you know unreliable sources of information are great characters to to uh, to have in a strip like this
1: and it's it's really i mean the discussion of the the sword's gender or uh uh anything that it's so it's to me, to talk about Gandalf or to talk mm-hmm. about Charlie Brown, we could talk about Charlie Brown as a person. And it's right. very second nature to us because they're people. They're, you know, sure, they're just scribbles on paper, but they're people. Mm-hmm. And every once in a while, uh, my readers are talking about my characters in that same sense. And it is the probably the most flattering thing. Uh, and so,
0: Well, uh, yeah, it's got to be really nice to, to have people because that what that means is that your readers care. Your readers care about what happens to Sir Quimp and and Sir Quimp is a character. There's a there's definitely he's a nicely drawn, fully rendered character. And I mean that, you know, both in terms of personality as well as as uh, illustration. Uh, he comes. across I mean, I was actually thinking about you mentioned Charlie Brown. I was actually thinking about character development And how characters develop and how, um, in some ways, what elements are, are part of Sir Quimp? I mean, who is he as a character? What, where does he, where's he drawn from? Are there precedents, you know, in, in comics for, um, for sir quimp who might he who might he be drawing from his characters and so you know thinking about schultz well i think there's a little tiny bit of charlie brown in him um just a, a little bit of insecurity a little guilelessness um maybe a little innocence although and 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 the other thing that i think of is sir quimp is um is he's never going to give up he's on this quest he may be dead he may not be dead we don't know but he's he's on this quest and uh, he's not going to give up, and Charlie Brown's not going to give up either.
1: Right, right, absolutely. And that the the idea, the 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 hope of that football is is like <laughs> it, it, the the same thing. Is like um, th- this crimp is absolutely the, has that element as well, where there is a uh, – I, I think it's a sense that he doesn't. He's not sure if he's going to succeed, but he can't not try. And if he does succeed, it's going to be great. And, uh, but, <laughs> but, but, but he'll never, but he may never know. And so, uh, his character was, uh, so the strip itself, again, this is where another way, boy, peanut shaped, uh, the middle age. Mm-hmm. Um, at, at one point I met, uh, an editor from go comics at the small press expo in Bethesda, uh, and, uh, uh Sheena Wolf, who, uh, Oh know, yeah, sure. Mm-hmm. Uh, Will mentioned, and it was Richard Thompson's editor, mm-hmm. uh, and she said, oh, we got Go Comics. If you ever want to do a comic strip for Go Comics, you know, just let me know. She said, there's no money in it. You know, uh, she was very upfront about the, the financial prospects. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, that got me thinking about comic strips again. And so I said, OK, if I'm going to do a comic strip, what am I going to do? And I'd already heard that that classic bit of information says, you know, make it about kids or, or animals. You're right. And, exactly. and I just thought, no. Because of Charles Schultz and Bill Watterson, you know, no, I felt like that is a, I, I don't want to be anywhere near what they're doing. They've said right. it all. And, I, that's right. not, and that's not necessarily true. Again, Phoebe and a unicorn and, and uh, Wallace the Brave, beautiful, but, uh, but I felt like to me with my limited skill set, I don't want to get anywhere. Near. And also, I, I, I don't have kids. Uh, and, and so I didn't really have insights in that way. And I thought, okay, I'll do something. I'll try to do something that's more authentically me. And, and, I'm middle aged. I'm a I'm a a guy who who maybe has uh, my own version of chivalry, which may or may not have served me well my life. Uh, Uh And kind of a even starting a comic strip is kind of this nobly dumb quest to be on. I know, isn't it? it, it, I think it is. And so to me, that was, uh, you know, this is my hopeless quest is to, to do silly comic. It, it's I relate to everything that
0: you're saying because um i I have the same feeling. i I've actually, been talking to an editor elsewhere, uh, over the last two years. And, uh, in those discussions, you know, I, I, I was working on a proposal, uh, for them and, um, she came at me and said, well, you know, this isn't going to work. Let's talk about something else. And I was like, oh gosh, what do I do? You know, I said to her, I, I don't really think I can do kid strips. You know, I just, I mean, I think about exactly what you're saying is Charles Schultz, and, uh, uh, Richard Thompson and Calvin and Hobbes, Bill, Bill Watterson. I mean, every, what am I going to add to that? You know, I, I, and again, just like yourself, uh, we don't have children, so I, I don't have that to draw from. And I know, you know, when I look at those early Charles Schultz strips, man, he was, he was inspired by what was going on at home, even though peanuts went off in different directions. And what's kind of interesting later peanuts is how far afield it goes from the world of children you know, with Snoopy going on his adventures to see Spike and off in the desert or whatnot, uh, and a lot of Snoopy and Woodstock, um, the world of children isn't as, Peanuts doesn't, is not as informed by the world of children as it is in the 50s and the 60s when you know, Schultz's kids were young, but, um, why, why? Oh, I I know why I was talking about this because, you know, I, I, again, the same, same thing with you. I just didn't feel like I had those insights or that experience to draw from. So instead I start working on different things. And of course there's, you know, plastic baby heads from outer space is like, well, you know, I mean, totally what the heck is that about? And then, um, uh, the thing I'm doing now, uh, which I, is not out in the world yet, but it's it's uh, about three women living together in Hollywood. Uh, for gosh sakes, it's well, I avoided the children, but now I'm dealing with a subject. Well, you know, it's not even the same gender, uh, but okay, whatever. Uh, it's not a kid strip, so I, I, I kind of know what you're talking about there. I avoided the same thing because I just didn't feel like. That territory has been done, and it's been done so well. And Wallace is great, and and Dana Simpson is doing great stuff. And, you know, my hat's off to them, but I don't think I could go there authentically.
1: So what are your influences? Looking at Plastic Babyheads from Space, are the Warner Brothers cartoons a big part of your DNA?
0: yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, again, this is about you, not about me. So, you know, I should, I should leave this stuff off, but I'll do, I'll do a little di- because, you know, like anybody who talks talking about myself is a real easy thing to do, <laughs> um, but I, I will say, yeah, uh, there's so many different things that, right. This is where we try to, Take apart the influences and yeah, Warner Brothers Looney Tunes. Uh, like everybody my age, I grew up with that stuff immersed in my head. I grew up in the '60s and it was just implanted there, you know. Uh, but Mad Magazine again, uh, Harvey Kurtzman and Wally Wood stuff from from Mad Magazine. Will Elder, all those guys in Mad. Uh, any kind of satirical approach to the world, uh, you know, Candide by Voltaire, for gosh sakes, you know, but you know. Another big one is Monty Python. I mean, I'm a big, I'm not a fanatic, but Monty Python is deeply embedded in my head too. And, uh, so all that stuff kind of funnels it way its way into this kind of absurd thing that I did, um, uh, which was again, you know, as I've said several times was just a joke. I mean, I, I did it as a joke, actually a student in one of my classes had some photograph, a really weird photograph of these doll heads and they were baby heads. And I was like, whoa, plastic baby heads. And I started making jokes about it in the classroom. And, uh, and she finally gave me the photograph and said, you can keep this. And I kept it for years and I had it for years. And one day I opened up a drawer and there it was And I needed to do this comic strip for this newspaper we were publishing, Kevin Much and myself called Pood which was, a, a you know, an anthology thing. And, um, uh, we needed material for a page cause somebody had bailed on, on the uh, page that they were going to do for us. And so we all did little comic strips and, um, I did that. And then I was like, oh, you know, that led to another idea and another idea. And before long, I was, I was having a goof on myself. you know, and then I put it up online for the hell of it. And then I uh, submitted after I'd done like a hundred strips, I was like, well, you know, why don't I, I'd never even heard of go Comics, So then I submitted it to them and lo and behold, you know, they must've been, you know, I don't know whether they were smoking something that day or what, but they decided to take it. And I mean, no offense to anybody there, but, um, they took it and I was totally surprised. Of course, it had a very checkered history there and uh, and um, part of the reason I don't do it anymore was because of that checkered history. It, what it is just, a
1: checkered what does that mean?
0: Well, it wasn't re- received very well and um, the it de- debuted on April 1st, 2013. Don't ever <laughs> debut a comic strip on April 1st. It, it it did not go well there. If you go back and look at my first strip and you look at the comments, there are like 30 comments. And I was not prepared for this at all. They were, they were just so, so negative and And I, I woke up, that day and I, you know this was a dream come true for me i was like oh i've got a comic strip boy big deal and the first day it's like you know oh god it was just awful and and it it took that dream and totally trashed it and afterwards it was just it never went anywhere after that and and for the rest of the run really I, I never really got a lot of support, so it, it, you know it just didn't work out too well. Uh, it's not that I didn't have fun with it or wasn't proud of it; I was, but it was kind of a painful experience. So, um, so and what
1: was involved in rebranding it and changing the focus to Jetpack Junior?
0: Well, that had to do with exactly what I went through, which was nobody's reading this thing, man. Nobody likes it. It's not going any place. You're not getting any fans and people just keep complaining. So, okay, let's try taking it in a different direction and maybe I can make it into something somebody will like, but that didn't really work much either. And, um, so after strange thing was one of the guys who wrote my case more than anybody else on that. Site with co- bad comments and you know nasty f- sayings. Um, ended up writing me a note saying, you know, he would have kept reading the strip if I kept it plastic baby heads, but he hated Jetpack Junior. <laughs> I was like, man, what, I can't win, you know. So anyway, it was a it was a very bittersweet kind of experience for me. I go back and post something every now and again, and I had a lot of fun with some of it um, personally. You know, I mean, personally, I enjoyed what I, I was doing, but I, I never got an audience for it. And and what people did read, it always seemed to re- I always they seemed to go to read it because they hated it. And so anyway, they, yeah, I that, saw
1: that with the, the Comics Kingdom community. I've got some friends who like Mike Bandley, who works on Judge Parker, uh-huh. and, uh, the Phantom and the, the community there seems to be largely <laughs> hopefully I'm not inviting them to come over to go comics and talk about my strip but uh it seems to be like a mystery science theater type crowd where everybody wants to make a snarkier comment than the one that preceded it um so I don't it's, think... it's, it's, it's very toxic
0: it it can be very toxic. And, and I've read things by other creators who, who you know, uh, more experienced creators who've been around who have a fan base, you know, and I, I never had a fan base. So, but people who've been around who say they've go th- gone through the same thing. And, you know, I remember reading some posts on Facebook from people who I would never expect to be getting, you know, snarky troll-like comments about them because their work is respected and they've, you know, been someplace. And and it, gosh, you know, it, it drives me crazy because it's so hard to put something out out there and it's so hard to put yourself in the line and okay you don't like it uh, you can say something constructive but to be just you know di- disparaging for no apparent reason than to make yourself feel better is such a destructive uh, approach to it and so uh you know and, and in my case it, it was kind of <laughs> it reminds me of when I was a kid you know the, uh, the, it's, it seems to be a, a common theme in my life when i was a kid you know playing baseball uh, i think i said this in the first episode learning how to play baseball and everybody called me charlie brown because i was a little kid and i was so bad but it sort of set me up for failure you know and in a way that's what happened to me on go comics too sort of set me up for failure but um eh, well you live and learn and you grow
1: i think about comic strips it's like the uh, way dan savage talks about relationships he says you know every relationship fails until one doesn't
0: exactly right that that's that's brilliant that it really is brilliant and and you yeah everything fails until something doesn't um hey what the heck you keep trying and um and you live and learn and you go on from one thing to another but yeah there's something really i found too that one thing i didn't know was because i was coming from comic books i'd done alternative comics and i'd done independent stuff back in the 90s uh you know i self-published stuff during that whole black and white boom and um, what I found was that the, the world for comic strips on Go Comics and Comics Kingdom is a different world. It's a different audience than necessarily the same folks who are reading the latest stuff from Drawn and Quarterly or Fantagraphics or something. Sure. Yeah. So they had different expectations, which was I was not prepared for either. Anyway, um, th- let's leave that aside and and talk more about you and uh, your experience because you've been online a long time and um, y- I mean you've been you were one of the first people to put web comics out there. With I remember, um, both of us were on ComicCon dot com, Rick Veach's um site way back in the day. Do you remember? Sure. Um, that? Oh, yeah. site? I, I had a strip called Doctor Speck, which was
1: a comic book. Holy it, cow! Yeah. Do you, you? remember? Th- yeah. What? Rick- well, ComicCon.com was a co-creation of Rick, features and myself.
0: Right, so, and 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 uh, you know, I know you did uh, you, the web design for it. I think, right?
1: Yeah, we uh, we 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 had met at S. We actually it was Dave Simms' Spirits of Independence tour in '95. Uh, okay. We met up, uh, and at some point, Rick wanted me to help him with a website, and I was like, man, it'd be great if we could get his crowd and my crowd, and basically sustain that mm-hmm. Spirits of Independence tour year-round. And so that's where ComicCon.com we we registered the domain name he brought in all the all his oh, yeah. big time friends and i cobbled the, the tech together and uh, yeah. it was a beautiful community from about 98 to about 2001
0: yeah it was it was really great you know at that time it was all like being defined you know webcoms it was still kind of strange and uh, what you were doing with astounding uh, space it's called thrills. Astounding, yes, space thrills, which I'm sorry, um, yeah. which, you know, it's interesting. I looked at back then and, and it was like, oh, my gosh, this is amazing because you were experimenting things with with things like animation and gifs and stuff. And, and I was like, it blew me away. Uh, I went back and refamiliarized myself with it in preparation for our discussion today. And I was just like, man, you were just kicking it back then. And uh, but it was also such a brand new world. And you were trying everything, it seemed like, that was um, that was possible at the
1: time. At the, at the same time, it's very much a comic strip. Well, yeah, I, I thought back then that if comic strips hadn't been invented, they would have been for the web because yeah. the download speeds were so slow the 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 pixel width the restrictions were so uh uh onerous yeah Uh, and given that the daily grind of producing work and producing work in a daily way because the internet even back back then it seems like a glacial pace but even back then we sensed that the 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 pace was picking up and that we needed to produce something every day otherwise you'd be forgotten Uh, exactly so that the daily strip i think might have evolved independently of it's rich history in newspapers um but, well
0: you know i re, oh I'm, I'm sorry i was gonna say brad geiger and and dave kellett uh from comic lab and from sheldon and um evil inc both of those guys uh, i don't know if they were on ComicCon.com, but they were um they were you know among the earliest like yourselves and actually like you know i was there too uh but i wasn't I wasn't really keeping up with that idea. You guys were all on that idea that you you know you knew it had to be updated every day, otherwise the audience wouldn't come along. It's not the same now, but it was in in those days. It was really necessary.
1: Yeah, and they did a much better job of having daily updates and PvP. Uh, Scott Kurtz and the uh,
0: mm-hmm. yeah
1: guys and Charlie Parker with Argon Zark and so many of the early strips. Argon
0: Zark, oh my gosh.
1: They were so they were all inspiring, and all of us were were, I think a lot of us. Wanted to either be in newspapers or wanted to be in comic books, and were, right. you know, th- those networks had gatekeepers or had, mm-hmm. uh, you know, sales thresholds that were very difficult for an independent book to make mm-hmm. uh, to meet. Like if I, I had self-published a comic book starting in ninety four, mm-hmm. and back then there was no print on demand. You had to print three thousand copies. Yeah, you, had you had did. 1, three thousand copies. They could only be black and white because you couldn't afford color. I mean, yeah. I, I certainly couldn't. Um, and you know, it was a, you know, you had to deal with diamonds. You had to be put in a catalog. You had to hope that the catalog listing was correct. There were so many problems that once you had a webcomic and you learned a modicum of HTML, you mm-hmm. could post your comic strip, you know, with no gatekeeper, nothing between you and the reader. And that was huge.
0: Yeah, it was huge. It was huge. It seemed to suggest that this was the way to go. This was freedom. Although, you know, it still had a ways to go in our mind. I, th- I think we were all probably still thinking ultimately of print. Uh, as the final destination, still, you know, the freedom afforded and the accessibility, you know, I, uh, at the same time, there was, a, it was hard to promote those things. Um, I remember putting the webcomic on and, and get this, it was on AOL hometown. Uh, do you remember that? Oh, my God. And uh, I, I, I remember thinking, okay, now, what do I do? <laughs> You know, I've got it up here. What do I do now? I have no idea. You know,
1: I, I don't that I don't think that's changed for a lot of people. Yeah, <laughs> uh, I see comic strips going up all the time on Webtoons and, uh, you know, or posted you know. right now. Uh, the thing is, I don't think that the environment's changed all that much. I still mm-hmm. think every comic strip needs to start with a five year plan. Mm-hmm. I think you 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 can't assume that you're going to be an overnight success. I mean, you might be. I don't know when the last one was, but um mm-hmm. I think it takes, there was a, the late Batten Lash had oh. quoted Dave Sim about, like he he approached Dave Sim at the Spir- Spirits of Independence tour and said, man, I've been reading Cerebus all the way since issue 65 or something like that, like way back in the beginning, because you know, he was up to issue 170 or whatever by then. And Batten had a considerable output at that point. And he was at, at you know yeah. issue 25 and Dave Sim said, okay, you've got 40 more issues before you get that reader. You know what I mean? It's like. Wow. Yeah. You've got to you know, you don't you you don't get those readers until you've been at it for a well,
0: 30- man. Now we don't have to spend that kind of money. You know, can you imagine (laughs) 40 issues before you get the readers and how much money and how many books that is, they're stacked up in your apartment someplace. You know, I remember when I was, I was printing those books back in the, in the nineties, I printed four issues of Dr. Speck and I had, I had, we were in a one bedroom apartment in Brooklyn and man, I had stacks of stuff, you know, left. Finally, I had one day I had to take them all and uh, not all of them, but I took a good chunk of them and donated them to To toys for tots, you know, during a, a Christmas rush because because I had no place else to to put them, you know. Because you had to print like a thousand of each thing, each book, sure. and uh, for however much it was from from Quebecor in those days, and because uh, there was no print on demand, right? Just as you were saying, and and so it was prohibitive. Uh, you might go to SPX and and you uh, and sell you know a hundred books if you're lucky, which I never, I don't think I ever sold a hundred books at SPX, but um, th- or you might go to uh, uh, you might get in diamond the catalog uh, with Diamond or um, who was the uh, who was the other distributor that went under? Yeah. Capital, yeah. You might get in there and you might sell a couple hundred books total, you know, 500 books maybe if you're lucky. I I, I think maybe that was the most I did with a number one issue. Might have been a thousand. I don't know. Um, But I don't remember. But any case, it was. you always ended up with tons of books left over and, uh, uh, you know, not knowing what to do with them. And uh, it cost a fortune. Boy, bringing up Bat and Lash, too. uh, uh, What a sweet, sweet guy. And what a sad... Sad thing. I'm so sorry. He's he's passed away, and and uh, you know what a great inspiration he was. He wrote, uh, you know, he was a big early on. He was a supporter of mine uh, when I I had very few, and and uh, he wrote a very kind letter for me that I published in the second issue. Doctor Speck, very supportive, and um, always was. And whenever I ran into him at a convention, he was he was the nicest guy.
1: Yeah, he was great. He was a tremendously uh, wonderful just a wonderful person and uh, mm-hmm. and a uh, yeah it, a really funny cartoonist too.
0: Yeah, really great cartoonist. I, you know, uh, Wolfenbird was a terrific book, one of the earliest independents uh, out there and uh, um really just carried on for all those issues and they were wonderful. It was a great book. Such a sad note to end uh, the first part of our discussion with Steve on. But I did want to mention that uh, uh I think the passing of Bat and Lash uh, is something that needs to be remarked upon. Batten was a wonderful cartoonist as you've heard both Steve and I say. But Not only a wonderful cartoonist, he was a wonderful person and uh, those of us who met him at conventions certainly recall uh, his affable personality and uh, his uh, generosity of spirit and his support for uh, cartoonists like myself who were coming up in his wake in the middle and late 90s and uh, uh, so a tip of the hat to Batten Lash, who uh, who did wonderful work in Wolf and Bird, uh, who brought so much to small press and to small press comics. And uh, and personally, uh, I'll never forget the support he offered me when I first started self-publishing. And uh, so thank you, Batten. Uh, we will miss you. I hope you enjoyed that uh first part of our discussion with Steve Conley. Uh, I think Steve's amazing. He's a really intelligent guy, great conversationalist. It's always exciting to talk to somebody uh, who you've uh, shared experiences with, right? Uh, it, it, it's There's a, a sense of veterans having gone through some kind of uh, life experience together, uh, shared paths in a way. Uh, anyway, I enjoyed that discussion a lot and enjoyed talking to Steve about some of the, the our, our shared experiences. Next time, we talk more about Peanuts. We talk more about Steve's work in the middle age. And I hope you'll come back. Uh, in the meantime, uh, head on over to wherever you get your podcasts, Apple or iTunes, or give us a review. It really helps uh, uh, get the word out there. Uh, Five star review, boy, that's that's a big help too. Uh, it, it just it just gets helps spread the word and it encourages people to listen to the podcast. You know, if they come along and they see those reviews, and they see those stars, makes them want to download an episode and check it out for themselves. And uh, so, please do so. It's going to help us continue. Uh, In this endeavor, which which is there's a lot to it. Right. I I had no idea when I started, but it's a lot of fun and I'm having a great time and I love talking comics. I love talking with these cartoonists uh, and uh, people like Steve upcoming. We've got some great shows. Uh, Terry Libenson of the Pajama Diaries is going to be on uh, sometime, I think, in early May to talk about her work her graphic novels, her uh, comic strip, uh, syndicated comic strip for King Features, The Pajama Diaries, and uh, which is one of my favorites uh, syndicated these days. I, I really enjoy that strip. Uh, so check it out. I think that's going to be a lot of fun. And after that, we have Lex Fajardo of Kid Beowulf and uh, of the Schultz Studio on. An Eisner winner to talk about his work and his relationship to the work of Charles Schultz and uh, what it's like to work at the Schultz Studio. That is going to be a fascinating episode as well. So we got lots to look forward to. Make sure you come back. If you are so inclined, stop over at jeffgrogan.com. That's G-O-F-F-G-R-O-G-A-N.com. Check out my work, uh, Plastic Babyheads from Outer Space or Jetpack Junior or any of the other uh, various artworks or uh, comic books that are on the site. It always makes me happy to know somebody's uh, read my comics. That's what they're there for. And uh, again, uh, if you want to keep up with me, you can follow me at Jeff. Uh, on Instagram, that's Grogan Jeff, G-R-O-G-A-N-G-E-O-F-F. Uh, enjoy the early spring. Stop to smell the lilacs. Lilac time. That's my favorite, my favorite flower and uh, flowering bush. And. Um, uh, so there's spring is just springing up all around us and the taxes are behind us so we're moving forward into uh, uh, one of those wonderful times of year where everything is, is uh, coming alive again it's been a long, cold, lonely winter we're looking forward to some warmth in the air okay, roly-poly it's time for us to say goodbye for this episode but we'll be back Betsy loves it up here so makes her happy And uh, it's nice to be able to share some time with her up here in the closet, (laughs) the closet studio. So, uh, you know, I don't have to say it, but I will anyway. Hug a warm puppy and thanks for listening.